Our gospel lesson for this morning is one that is very familiar to you. It is the one we call the Good Samaritan. And perhaps it is a story that we have heard too much. Maybe we're more familiar with it than even we realize. It's one of those stories that challenges the preacher because I know you know most of the nuances of it. But it also ends up challenging you because my suspicion is that neither one of us knows as much about it as we ought to. It is much more subtle than you think it is. Jesus makes a very bold contrast between the behavior of this despised Samaritan and the religious people of his day the leaders in the religious community. And it becomes a word we need to hear. Jesus ends with the words, go and do likewise. And I think what Jesus is really saying to us is, go now and walk in an alternative way. Well, let's see if we can figure out what that alternative way might be. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved to pity, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, and having poured oil and wine on them, then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, giving them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will pay you whatever else you have spent. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And he said, The one who showed mercy? And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. As we come to this story in Luke, Jesus has been on the road from Galilee, which is up in the north, and he's been traveling to Jerusalem, which is down in the south. Instead of the normal routes that, that most Jewish pilgrims would take, and the normal route is you cross the Jordan River, what today we'd call the Transjordan, and so you're on the east bank, not the west bank, and you'd come south along the river to Jericho, and then you would hike, and when I say hike, that's really what it is, moving up the mountain to get to Jerusalem. 
The reason that they went that way is because they hated Samaritans. And if you came straight south from Galilee to Jerusalem, you're going to move through the land of the Samaritans. Well, Jesus reverses that, as Jesus often does. He decides he's going to come right on south, right down through the valley, the area that belongs to the Samaritans. Now, there are several stories that get told about Jesus' journeying south this way. In one place, they stop at a Samaritan village, and the village recognizes they're Jewish and will not feed them, and the disciples say, Jesus, let us call down fire from heaven. Pretty mad, you think? And Jesus said, no, that's not the way we're going to do this. So when the group nears Jerusalem, this teacher of the law, and that's the religious law, is traveling out to meet them, and the text says he's coming to test Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means he's looking for some place to find fault. He may, he's going to ask a real question, but he's looking for some way to find fault with Jesus. And so he says, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Significant question. It's one of the best questions that anybody can ask. So Jesus treats it as if it were a legitimate question. He says, what do the scriptures say? Isn't that what we would do? And this guy is a scholar in the law. And so he says, as we have mostly learned by heart, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And then he added to it, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus didn't invent this idea of caring for neighbors. Both of these come from the Old Testament. These are hardcore values in Judaism. There aren't values that are actually worked on very much, but they are there. And so Jesus says, you're absolutely right. Now go out and do likewise. Well, he hadn't tested Jesus quite enough. So he says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, as Jesus always does, instead of answering, tells a story. And the story becomes the answer. It helps for us to remember that Jesus often took his stories from the immediate context of what was going on around him. Uh, he would take a familiar scene or something that people might have known well, and he will take that story and he will reinterpret it or he will frame it in such a way that he is able to prove his point. Well, Jesus and this, uh, this lawyer, this scribe, may very well have been standing in the road or near the road that leads from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's called the Pilgrim's Road. I've already told you that's the way most Jewish folks would have come up from the north by making this long detour around. But it's also called the Red Way or the Bloody Way. And Jesus' hearers would know exactly what that meant. It's 20 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem. 
but it is a notoriously dangerous road. It runs out from the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem, and after a few miles it comes to a little village called Bethany, which you remember is where Martha and Mary and Lazarus live, and Jesus was back and forth there many times. And at the conclusion of this story, that's where he goes. From Jerusalem to Bethany is pretty normal. It's countryside. Uh, there are people around. It's a farming area. Jerusalem is at about 2,500 feet above sea level. Jericho is 1,000 feet below sea level on the way to the Dead Sea. So now we're talking about a 3,500 foot elevation change in about 20 miles. Put that in perspective. Uh, those of you who are planning to go on the church retreat, and you notice how carefully I worked in the church retreat announcement in a sermon. Those of you who are planning to go on the church retreat, if you leave from the church parking lot and drive to Banner Elk to the church camp, you're going to drive about 60 miles. And you're going to gain about 2,500 feet. All right, this is a third of the distance and 1,000 feet more. Another example, maybe this will help. We spent uh, a week in Gatlinburg back a couple of weeks ago. If you drive the road from Gatlinburg across the mountain, Newfound Gap, and like you're going to uh, Cherokee, in about 18 or 19 miles, you gain 3,500 feet. Now, if you drive either one of the two drives around here, you know what you're going to see. Lots of greenery, lots of trees, lots of vegetation, rivers. If you're in the Great Smokies this time of year, you'll probably see a rain shower off in the distance. You'll see it on the way to Banner Elk, too, for that matter. That's not the way it is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Think badlands. Think desert. Think rocky, not much growing, although there are nomads out there feeding sheep and goats. You wonder what they'd eat. So it is not a very pleasant walk. And as you know, it is the place where bandits, thieves, robbers dwell. Jesus knew this. His hearers were absolutely familiar with this. That's why they travel in groups. There's safety in groups. So they knew about the violence. But we know about violence too, don't we? If you've not been the victim of a violent act, and as I look out on you, I don't know that any of you have, I'll almost guarantee you that you know somebody who has or you know somebody who knows somebody who has. That's just the way it is anymore in our culture. We are one of the most violent societies in the world. Yeah, we, the U.S. of A. That's who we are. If Hollywood was rewriting the story of the Good Samaritan, one of those folks would have been wearing a white hat, and packing a six-shooter, and he'd have gone off into the woods, the rocks, the trees, found the bad guys, shot them, and recovered the guy's money. Because that's the way we think about it. We expect violence to be the first choice, not the last one. 
Kind of sad, isn't it? Kind of a sad commentary on who we are. So here's Jesus. He has talked about this not uncommon occurrence. And then here's where he does the setup. He puts in a priest and a Levite. Priest and a Levite. Leaders in the religion. Leaders of the faith. Now, have you any idea why there'd be a priest and a Levite on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho? Anybody know? It's because there were too many priests and Levites to all live in Jerusalem. They sort of worked a, a funny schedule. They'd work a week or two on and a week or two off. So they had to live somewhere, and so many of them lived down in Jericho. So they commuted back and forth. So when the priest and the Levite are going back down to Jericho, or back up, we don't really know which one, it's because they're probably either finishing a shift or getting ready to go on. Didn't know that, did you? But that's the way it worked. But Jesus takes these two people who are supposed to be the leaders, the ones who know about compassion, the ones who can define who a neighbor is, and he has them, what? Pass by on the other side. And Jesus doesn't have to tell you why. Maybe they were afraid the robbers were still there. Maybe they were afraid this guy's a plant, and if they stop, they'll be the ones who are attacked. We don't have a clue. Jesus doesn't bother to tell us. What we do know is, is they will not stop. The priest and the Levite may not have stopped because if they came in contact with this hurt man's blood, they are now defiled and they can't go to work. And they didn't have workman's comp, so they were out a week's pay. So the parable continues... And it continues much as we already know it will. And part of it is because we're familiar with the way violence works. People get hurt. Other people don't do anything about it. And society doesn't change very much. It doesn't seem to make much of a difference. And sadly, in this story... And often in our lives, we make the assumption that one person can't make any difference and that violence and greed will always win. That's what the priest and the Levite probably thought. So then Jesus sort of sticks in the knife of the story. Because the one who does stop is the one who is the most despised of any character that a Jewish person of the day will know about. A Samaritan. A Samaritan is sort of a half-Jewish, half-something else. They're the folks that got left over when the time of captivity came and they stayed behind and they intermarried with other people. Their worship is sort of Jewish and sort of not. So they are considered mongrels and less than that. I mean, the worst thing you could say to somebody is what? They were a Samaritan or a tax collector. Bad, bad news. 
So what does Jesus do? He takes this hated person and he makes him the one who shows compassion. Why? Well, I mean, you can speculate. It may be because the Samaritan knows what it's like to always be on the receiving end of other people's hurts. He's got to move in and out of Jewish society and they don't want to have anything to do with him. He knows what it's like to be damaged by people who don't like you. Maybe his one little act of compassion is a way of saying, you know, I really am worth something. I'm important too. Two men move down the road. They assume that violence will always win by refusing to stop. They give absolute power to the violent and the greedy. What can anybody do? But then the third guy, the Samaritan comes by, and Jesus doesn't even tell us why he stops, except that he has compassion. The Samaritan, if you like, is an activist. He sees, he stops, he goes, he binds, he cares, he gives. He refuses to allow one evil act to take over for everything else. No, he can't fix everything. He can't restore it to the way it was. But by golly, he can help the one guy laying hurt on the side of the road. We don't know if the victim recovers. Again, the story doesn't tell us that. What it does tell us is that the Samaritan didn't act because he was guaranteed success. He acted because he had compassion. Compassion seems to be in short supply, I feel. And one of the reasons I suspect that it is is because too often we think that our ability to show compassion doesn't make very much difference. We've talked a great deal in the past year about hospitality. We like the sound of the word hospitality. I'm going to be hospitable and I'm going to invite somebody new that I know and kind of like out for a cup of coffee. Or I meet somebody at work and we sort of hit it off and so I'm going to be hospitable and I'm going to take them to lunch. And those are good things. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are positive. But hospitality is more than making a new friend out of somebody who's very much like you. Hospitality asks the question, who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor affects how we become compassionate. Remember, this is a part of the whole issue of what must I do to have eternal life? Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. How hard it is to understand this sort of an ending that Jesus gives. Love of neighbor may be standing up to evil and violence and greed, but it may be doing it by being compassionate for those who've been victimized. You cannot love God, not really love God, unless you're compassionate for people who need help. Even the ones you don't think deserve it. That's the hardest one of all, isn't it? 
we look at people and we say, well, they brought it on themselves. And often we do. But the Samaritan doesn't ask the question, what did this guy do to bring it on himself? He just stops. He sees, he stops, he tends the wounds, he binds them up, he takes him to an end, he spends money, a lot of money, for somebody he doesn't know who might have brought it on himself. Tell you what, if Christians start acting like that, you know, we might actually change the world. Wouldn't that be remarkable? One person at a time, we might actually change the world. Now, I'm aware there's a hundred other things you can say that become sort of an argument against. Uh, this sort of talk quickly will become, well, don't you think we ought to let the government have a hand? And then others will say, nah, the government can't do it. What do they know about it? This is not political. This is about compassion for somebody who needs it even if they don't deserve it. Which one of us deserved Christ's compassion for us? Well, I'm pretty sure I don't. How about you? Evil and violence is never the final word if we stand in the name of Christ and say we won't let it be the final word. If we stand with those who have been victimized, if we are willing to light one candle in the darkness of this world and say we will not shut up, we will not let this lack of concern for other people have its way because we will do it. We will stand up and be counted. We will be the neighbor who learns and shows compassion. I told you it was a harder parable than you thought. Steps on our toes more than we ever wanted it to. Some days my toes need stepping on. How about yours? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.